You want a hand? Good morning. I am Pastor Mike, and you guys caught me setting up. Fun fact about me. I actually worked in a comic shop through high school, which makes me a certifiable comic book nerd. I got unreasonably excited when this year uh, Amazon made an invincible animated series. And if you don't know what that is, it's because you're lame. <laughs> Not me. And like every good comic book nerd, I have strong takes on one central debate. Who is cooler, Batman or Superman? Raise your hands. Batman. Superman. Some of y'all didn't vote, and you don't believe in democracy. <laughs> but that's okay, because there actually is a correct answer, so democracy is a bit of a fraud in this case, because Batman is way cooler than Superman. Boo! Boo to you! You see, I have never liked Superman as a character. He's got every power, and he uses them to, like, save kittens from trees. He's too powerful. He's a Boy Scout. He's boring. He's white bread. He's lame. Harsh words, but it's true. <laughs> but I do love this one Superman story. It's the comic called Superman Red Sun, which I put up an image of right here. Yes, that is very startling, is it not? I love this story because what it does is it takes what I dislike about Superman and turns it upside down. It asks what happens if Superman, with all of his powers and his black and white morality, believed that good came through control. It's set in an alternate universe where, as you could probably tell, Superman, as a baby, lands in the Stalin-era Soviet Union rather than America, becoming an icon of Soviet power in opposition to his nemesis that we all know, Lex Luthor, who leads the United States and does the usual supervillain shenanigans trying to defeat Superman. Most importantly to the plot, he allows Brainiac, which I'm not even going to get into him today, to shrink Stalingrad, an entire city of civilians, to the size that it can fit into a bottle in this attempt to trap Superman. An unjust act that Superman fails to prevent and ultimately devastates him, and he regrets over the course of the story. Keep that in mind. Well, following Stalin's death, Superman becomes the leader of the Soviet Union, and he's determined to use his powers for the greater good, as he calls it. He eliminates famine and warfare by imposing his will onto the world, defeating all opponents. And like a good Boy Scout, he doesn't kill them. He just does brain surgery on them to make them subservient. It's a whole other irk that we're not going to talk about today. <laughs> he conquers the world. And ultimately, only the U.S. remains outside of his control. That is until the final act of the story where we see Superman descending upon the White House to get revenge over what Lex Luthor did to Stalingrad and to complete his conquest, to impose his vision of peace and justice and goodness once and for all by force. But as he does, Lex delivers to him a letter with just one sentence on it, which Lex claims will ultimately defeat Superman that it contains his greatest fear. At which point I'm like, a letter? Like, bro, come on, it's Superman. Well, Superman reads it. He falls to his knees weeping and he surrenders. It simply reads, why don't you just put the whole world in a bottle? Superman. In one sentence, Superman sees that in seeking to do good, 
through power and control, he actually produced the very evil he sought to end. He became the villain of our world's story, not its hero. And that hits. You see, we as human beings, we often believe that we can create good by eradicating evil with the tools of evil, power, control, domination, only to find that in doing so, we become just a cleaner looking, more palatable version of evil itself. It's the great trick of evil, you see. Fighting it feels good. It feels easier when we use its tools in opposition to it. And yet, when we do so, the good we create ceases to be good. And it's this truth that we're going to explore today as we continue journeying, journeying through the New Testament letter of James in our series, Faith That Works. In particular, what we're going to look at is how this truth relates to how we do conflict as Christians. You see, James is convicted that in conflict, the ends do not, do not justify the means. That how we seek good matters just as much as what we perceive good to be. And thus our faith as Christians must work on how we do conflict as disciples. We pick up in chapter four, and we're continuing in the section of the letter where James is addressing teachers in Christian communities thus far over abusive language and failing to rely on God's wisdom as Sam taught on last week. Now, what James is going to do is he's going to turn to the outcome of this behavior, division, which he takes deathly serious. Verse one, what causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You desire, but do not have, so you kill. You covet, but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. When you ask, you do not receive because you ask with the wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. So James asks a rhetorical question. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Which in Greek can refer to a whole host of things. It can refer to everything about a conflict ranging from general hostility, just kind of not liking the other person, to outright warfare, physical violence. It's this picture of, a right, of rivalrous factions forming within churches, producing everything from verbal abuse, degrading other human beings that you disagree with, to physical violence. All of which, and this is gonna make us uncomfortable, James clumps together into the same category and just flat out condemns. And why are fights and quarrels occurring within these communities? Well, James says they're flowing out of their desires or their cravings, which are warring within them and overflowing into their communities. Now, it's important to know, because this is often misunderstood, this is not a blanket statement on all desires. James in context, has a specific desire in mind. In fact, you have to remember that in context, he's addressing who? Leaders creating division with their words and their behavior. You see, what we see is that what he's specifically dealing with is the desire or the craving for power and control, which we see in his accusations. 
first. These leaders crave what they don't have. So they murder, James says, which sounds intense, but you need to remember that for James, murder includes both killing and, as Jesus taught in the Gospel of Matthew, any anger, hatred, or contempt for another human being. So what is he talking about? These leaders desire power and control, but don't have it because others oppose them. So in their anger, hatred, and contempt, they lash out verbally and physically, trying to get their opponents out of their way, to impose their will, what they want for their communities. Second, they covet, but don't get what they want. So they quarrel and fight. Now, this is really interesting. You see, the Greek for covet is connected to what we in English would call zeal, which is also connected to the word zealot, which goes beyond jealousy or envy. You see, zeal in this context is radical obedience to God in which nothing is too extreme or off limits. In other words, these leaders crave power and control, and here's the kicker, they believe God wants them to have it. And thus, in their minds, nothing is out of bounds in their pursuit of it. Simply put, they want what they want when they want it, and nothing will stand in their way. And has this created churches of peace, love, and mercy? Does James think so? No. It's produced churches of chaos, abuse, and a vision. They've missed what God desires of them, which James highlights through prayer. What did he say? They pray but don't get what they want because they ask for the wrong things with the wrong motives. And what he does is it's actually kind of clever. He uses the language of currency. He says each day they desire power and control so much that they just spend all of their prayers, all of their desires, all of their actions, sorry, Austin, <laughs> on trying to get it. They look at it and they just say, oh, I want that so bad. They're like kids in a candy shop. They're like, take my money, take it all, because that's what I want more than anything in this world. They desire power and control so much that they spend their entire lives seeking it. Not God's will, not God's wisdom. And you can tell because they don't even consider God or his ways and their approach to conflicts. They only see red, enemies in their way to be crushed with words and deeds. And then they sit there and they wonder why God won't give us what we want. It's ridiculous. It's absurd. James says, no wonder there's fighting, quarrels, and divisions amongst you. How could there not be with that attitude, with that worldview? He continues in verse 4. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. So James summarizes this as spiritual adultery, which is an Old Testament metaphor used when Israel sought their own political and national aspirations over God's will, over his purposes for his people, practicing idolatry, seeking war, trying to gain worldly power. James diagnoses the same root problem here, which he defines as friendship with the world. Now, a few things. First, friendship here does not refer to your 672 friends on Facebook. 
In the ancient world, friendship was one of the highest values. It was very select. It was very, very small group that you would call your true friends. Thus, for James, friendship requires commitment, fidelity, a whole life cooperation with the person you call your friend. Second, biblically, the world does not refer to the physical earth. Rather, it encompasses the broken ways that we as human beings operate within this world. The ways that we pridefully try to usurp God and impose our will onto other people, creating violence, hierarchy, and oppression. When you see the world written in your scriptures, that's what's being referred to. In other words, what are these leaders doing? They're trying to follow God's ways in some areas, like the prayer area. We'll follow God's ways over there. But in other areas where it benefits them, they're like, but maybe we could just dabble a little bit in the ways that this world works. Is that cool, God? Like, are you down with that? What do you think James thinks? No, James draws a hard line. He says, you can choose friendship with God or the world, not both. And based on your speech and your treatment of other image bearers of God, it is rather clear who you've chosen to be your friend. For James, violence, power, control, these aren't things that we can dip one toe into while sticking the other nine into God's ways of peacemaking, justice, love, mercy. These things are tar pits, not kiddie pools. We can't crave power as the world defines it and still believe that we're in sync with what God wants for this world. Period, end of story. James comes down hard, but as always, it's to urge change. Verse five, or do you think scripture says without reason that he jealously longs for the spirit he has caused to dwell in us? But he gives us more grace. That is why scripture said God opposes the proud and shows favor to the humble. James writes, God jealously desires for the spirit, the life, the breath that animates our body that he's given us to be used for his purposes. He craves to see that happen. And his grace can empower us to do so. Verse seven, submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Come near to God and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom, which is all very intense. But that's the language of the prophets, the language of lament. It's the language that they use to talk about the moment you realize you made a mistake and turn the other way. All building to this, verse 10. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up, or better translated, he will exalt you. Which again is an incredibly clever little thing that James is doing. Because what did these leaders want all along? Exaltation. They wanted to be lifted up. James reminds them, you will be. But there's just one problem with what you're doing. And that's that in Christ, exaltation is found in a very different way than what our world teaches us. It's gained through grace, humility, and surrender, not craving power and control. We're exalted when we become humble servants, following God's wisdom, not our own, serving the needy, not oppressing them, using our speech 
in our actions to bring abundant life to our world, not destroy it. Giving our whole lives to God's will alone. James says God gives grace to the humble. And it's powerfully effective in overcoming our yearning for what we should not yearn for. These things that belong to God alone. Power, control, sovereignty. James says it can move us from pride. This exaggerated opinion of ourselves that strives for what's God to humility. Which leaves no room for craving control, power, and division. That's powerful stuff, right? And he closes in verse 11. Brothers and sisters, do not slander one another. Anyone who speaks against a brother or sister or judges them speaks against the law and judges it. When you judge the law, you are not keeping it, but sitting in judgment on it. There is only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and destroy, but you, who are you? to judge your neighbor. Again, do not slander or use words to harm instead of heal, no matter what you think of another person. To do so is to judge them, James says, stepping out from beside them to try to stand over them, forgetting that we all stand equally in need of God's grace. It's not me and God looking down on you. It's all of us before God. James asked, and I love this, who do you think you are when you do this? There's only one judge, judge and love lawgiver, and it ain't you. Who asked you to judge or lord power over others? That's not your job. You have one job, as the kids say, to humbly recognize your need for grace and let that move you to seek friendship with God through how you love your neighbor as yourself, period. End of story. Conflict can reveal whose friendship we're seeking. It can reveal whether we believe that or not. Because when we handle conflict like the world does, relying on judgment, not grace, pride, not humility, our will, not God's, what we're essentially doing is we're looking at the way the world works and we're saying, all in, all in. Take everything I've got. I want more of that. How many of y'all have looked at the way the world works and said, can we please get more of that? More violence, more oppression, more hierarchy, more judgment. James says, this is wrong, my brothers and sisters. It's wrong. It's spiritual adultery. The church is called to be a distinct community that lets God supplant their craving for power and control in the world with grace, humility, and friendship with him, a community united in love of God and neighbor. We miss that when we get this wrong. And y'all, I think there's just so much truth here in this passage. You see, conflict becomes toxic not because it's inherently bad, but because we try to resolve it in the ways of the world according to what it says we should desire. We enter conflicts, certain we are right, that we know best, relying on our will, believing that the only good resolution to this conflict is us having enough power and control to make everyone else do what we want. Anyone been there? 
And when they don't do what we want, what happens? The problem becomes those people are in our way, so we resolve to get rid of them so we can be exalted to the place that we believe we belong. And nothing is off limits because obviously God must agree with us. And with that posture, there is no limit to the harm created by Christians trying to do good in this world. That's what Red Sun captures. That's what James understands so profoundly. When we crave worldly things with worldly motives and worldly ways, our solutions to the problems we seek to solve make us far greater problems in God's good world. To protect people, we force them into bottles. And in our attempts to fix the world, we just end up breaking it. Can I get an amen? God calls us to a different way. Letting faith work on our desires, what we go all in on. Letting faith work on our conflicts. To in grace and humility embrace friendship with our God. Loving him with our whole heart, mind, and soul and our strength. And loving our neighbor as ourselves. And to close, I just want to reflect on where we need to hear James today. See, we all have conflicts. Welcome to the human race, as a friend of mine always used to say. And the problem isn't that conflicts exist, it's that we do them in the wrong way. It's how we do conflict. Because we can be right about conflicts, about what's wrong and what needs to be fixed, while still being utterly wrong within them by seeking good ends to the world's means. So what might friendship with God look like in our conflicts? First, get one in mind. You've got one, get it in mind. Where are you experiencing quarrels and fighting? Destructive, unproductive, never-ending conflict that isn't making anyone's life better. Some of the most common offenders, politics, family, friends, work, your marriage, your romantic relationships, this church, name it. Y'all got one in your mind? Don't make me ask again. Second, here's the kicker. Investigate yourself. In that conflict, do your words and behaviors reflect friendship with God or the world? And if you need help, start with James's major buckets, control and pride. In that conflict, are you trying to win and defeat the other person, or are you seeking mutual benefit and healing? Do you think that you're totally right? Now, the only good outcome of this conflict is you getting exactly what you want out of it. Do your words or actions scream, I want what I want when I want it? And forget anyone in my way. Have you displayed language, behaviors, or attitudes that in your opponent you'd call wrong or evil but are okay for you because you're right, so it's different? Anyone? How about judgmentalism? And again, it's important to note, I'm not talking about discernment. I've said this a number of times from this stage. Sometimes people hold toxic opinions and behaviors, unjust thoughts and actions in our world, and we have to be able to name those. But based on your judgments, on your evaluations of those people who hold such thoughts and behaviors and attitudes, have you started seeing them as less dignified than yourself? Do your words or actions reveal that you've stepped out from beside them to stand over them like you think you're God? Who do you think you are? How do you speak to and about political opponents online? 
How do you gossip about family members or church members who aren't there in the room? Have you judged others while telling yourself that your perception of their character lets you off the hook from obeying your Lord, Jesus Christ, and what he has told us to do, love our neighbor as ourselves? Because that's where James is speaking directly to you across the centuries. Someone's character does not give us the license to pursue friendship with the world or compromise our integrity in following Jesus' teachings. Period. And I'm not above this. I mean, just recently, I thought a decision at E3, honestly, a pretty minor one, didn't go my way. And instead of pausing and seeking God's wisdom, I puffed out my chest, I got prideful, and I acted like a jerk to poor Charlie Bancher. I love you, Charlie, by the way. He's a member of Wise Council. And guess what? One of the kicker? I was wrong. It was a miscommunication. It was a misunderstanding. I acted like a jerk to someone over something that wasn't even real. And I apologized, and Charlie showed grace. But did you notice this? Notice this. The harm that was caused in this conflict was not caused by the misunderstanding or the conflict itself. It was caused by how I handled it, by my rush to judgment, by my retaliation. And James says, Mike, investigate that. Look at that. What does that teach you? about what's going on in your heart, about who you are seeking to be friends with. Third, having investigated yourself, ask, where do I need grace in this conflict? And then embrace humility. Acknowledge that you are no better or worse than anyone on God's green earth and then own your side of the street because you have one. It's a helpful tool for me when I'm trying to own my side of the street is I focus on impact, not intention. You see, we can't know anyone's personal intentions. We only know what's going on in our heads despite what we think. So focus on how their choices impacted you and keep it there. Don't even try to assume that they had bad intentions. Don't assign that to them. It's unproductive. It's unhealthy. And this is equally crucial for owning our mistakes because here's the kicker. Here's what's important. It doesn't matter what I intended. Did I say or do something out of pride, control, or judgmentalism that caused unnecessary harm to another person? Period. That's my side of the street. That's what God calls me to own. And finally, in light of grace, where do I need to change? Again, we can't control others, so what does seeking friendship look like for me moving forward? as I seek to be more like Christ. Before you engage the conflict again, seek God's wisdom. Turn to Jesus' teachings on forgiveness and reconciliation. Ask others that you trust, that you know are discerning. Seek different perspectives. And this is the hard part. When they challenge you, when they tell you you're wrong, listen to them. Then the next time this conflict arises, pause and grace, embrace grace and humility Apply that wisdom, and before you respond, ask, what can I control myself, and what's my job? I have one, love God, love neighbor, and then act accordingly. As we head into this new season at E3, I just really felt convicted this week that we needed to hear this. For those that don't know, we have a new pastor, lead pastor coming on board. And we are exiting a season of trials and crisis in which there have been mistakes and failures, flawed people navigating impossible situations and sometimes not doing it well. 
and as broken people, that inevitably brought conflict. Fighting and quarreling of which I have been a part of my fair share. But through humility and grace, what I would urge you to do, what I believe from the depths of my heart is that we can move forward. I believe at the very bottom of my soul that it's time, E3, to release resentments, to forgive mistakes, and to surrender our worldly desires for retaliation and division. It's time to find a faith that works in and on and through our conflicts. Y'all, it's time to heal. Who's with me, E3? It's time to find this faith that works. So during this last song, the song that I love called Oh Come to the Altar, I just want you to ask yourself, where do you need to lay down at the altar of the cross your pride, your resentment, your judgmentalism, your ambition, your desire for control, for power, for what's broken our world? Where do you need to lay it down? Lay yourself down and find something new on the other side of what has so deeply broken us, our church, this world, resurrected life, the kingdom of God, something better than where we've been before. Amen? Amen. Amen. Join in.